Yeah, Joe is uh, getting a little uh, good vacation with his family over the season, so he's uh, let me uh, come up and give you guys the word this morning. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Um, each time I've been able to be up here uh, this year, we've been working through a couple verses of the first chapter of Ephesians, and uh, we're going to finish the first chapter uh, today. And as you turn there, I just want to talk about where, where we've been so far. Uh, Paul, in the first 14 verses of Ephesians, talks about how great God's grace is and how wonderful the gift of salvation is. And he does this using a couple different um, word pictures and metaphors. So we talked about um, adoption, how when we were saved, we were adopted into God's family. Um, we talked about how we have an inheritance as being a part of God's family, that we have the wonderful, amazing reality of heaven to look forward to as a certain inheritance. And we also looked at how salvation is like being redeemed or being bought out of slavery or out of jail and just how amazing that is and how it is a wonderful work of God on our behalf and how it is a total message of grace and love from the creator of the universe to wretched sinners such as me and us. So in this next section we're going to look at, in verses 15 to 23, we're going to see how Paul prays for the Ephesian church. And this is a common part of Paul's letters. He has a section where he thanks God for the church that he's writing to and then says how he is praying for them. And one of the reasons that's important to because sometimes we sort of skip the beginning parts of books because we think, okay, yeah, I got this one, nailed it. Um, you know, but one of the things that's important is for our own prayer lives. So in today, when we look at Paul's prayer, a study of Paul's prayers can help us in our own prayer life, and particularly how Paul prays, because it's one of the things I think that hampers our prayers, that keeps us from praying as we should, is sometimes we just don't know what to say, or we don't know how to pray. Let me, let me give you a good example that's been helpful in my life. How do you pray for an unbeliever? How do you pray for a family member or friend who doesn't know Jesus? Well, sometimes when we don't know how to pray, we might just say, well, God, uh, save this person, or God, we want them to be a believer. And, and we don't know how to, how to go further. Um, one of the things I've learned from reading Paul, Paul's prayers is that every time Paul prays for someone who doesn't know Jesus, he prays for an opportunity to share with that person. And you see how that's a little more precise, a little more, I can wrap my head around that. So when we pray for our unbelieving family and friends, we can say, God, give me opportunity to share your gospel with this person. And it gives, it sharpens our prayers. And, and it gives us more, I don't know, we feel like, it's a better prayer, and we feel more confident in those prayers. And so that is one of the great things about Paul's prayers is we learn how to, mo how he models prayer for us, so we learn how to pray better. Uh, the other thing is we see his priorities. Now, uh, we were talking in, in youth Sunday school about that, uh, we were talking about Black Friday, and we, we talked about, did you guys hear the story about the lady who got pepper sprayed uh, in L.A. during Black Friday? 
talk about messed up priorities. I'm sorry, there is nothing that a Walmart has that I'm going to pepper spray somebody over. Um, I hope that's you. I hope that we share that priority, that it's not worth temporarily blinding someone for an Xbox, no matter how cool an Xbox really is. Um, but in Paul's prayers, we see his priorities, and we have time to reflect on what are my priorities? What do I think is the most important? What does Paul think the most important, and do they match? Does what I say is a priority, is, does Paul say that's a priority? And that's one of the other good things about reading Paul's prayers as we see his priorities. Now, today in this prayer, we're going to see a model for prayer. We're going to see the priorities of Paul, but we're also going to see Paul's desire for the Ephesian church and for us by reading it. He, Paul wants the readers of this to know God more, to grow in their knowledge of God. And hopefully, as we, as we open this text, we'll see that today. So I'm going to read um, verses 15 to 23, and then like our common practice is here, we'll go back and work verse by verse. So starting in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so today we're going to see how we need to grow in our understanding of who God is. And we're going to see this in two phases. First, we're going to see why Paul prayed in verses 15 and 16, what prompted his prayer. And then we're going to look and spend most of our time in what Paul prayed. What was the content of his prayer? So there, there are two things that prompt Paul's prayer. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And the first, the first thing that prompts Paul to pray for the Ephesian church is the greatness of the gospel. Look at that first phrase there, for this reason. Now, a little grammar. I know you guys wanted to, to come to church and talk about grammar with me. Um, when you talk about a this, okay, demonstrative pronoun, um, a this can either say this thing that I'm about to talk about or this thing that I just talked about, right? And we say in, in grammar words, we would say that one points forward and one points backwards. Now, the problem is, is that English, same word. 
great thing is that in another language, different words. So we need to think, what type of this is this? And so, thank you for laughing at that. Um, this, this, I know, stay with me. This, this is a this that points backwards, okay? So we need to see what is it pointing back to? Now, specifically, it's pointing back to verses 13 and 14. Let me read that to you. Verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he's pointing back to his whole discussion of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ died and rising again on our behalf for our sins. And because that is so great, I'm going to thank God for you. Now, the second reason that prompts is not just the greatness of the gospel, but their response to that gospel. Look at, look at the rest of verse 15. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. These are two things, faith in Jesus and love towards all the saints. These are two responses to the gospel. So they believed the good news. They believed the good news about Jesus. They trusted in Jesus. And then they showed that that faith was sincere and real by living it out in love to their fellow believers. Okay, we've, we've talked a lot about how when you really believe something, it changes how you act. Okay, you know a tree by its fruit. How do you know it's an apple tree? There's apples on it, right? There's not pears on an apple tree. That doesn't make any sense, okay? Now, we know that our good works don't earn our salvation, but when we really come to faith in Christ, we're made a new creation, and the things that we do are good things empowered by the Holy Spirit that we have when we believe in Christ. And so he's saying, I thank God for you because you listened to what I say about Jesus, and then you responded by believing, and then showing that that was true belief by loving one another. Think about what Jesus said when he was summing up the commandments. Love God and love your neighbors. Out of a love for God, out of trusting in Jesus, we do love our neighbors. We do live it out. We live our lives out in a way that is pleasing to God. So God's grace and their response to it causes him to thank God for them and to constantly pray for them. Paul is thankful that they've received the blessing in the preceding verses. He is thankful that they have believed and that they've lived it out in loving other believers. A couple points of application for us today. We need to be thanking God for one another. With great frequency, we need to be praying, thanking God for this church and the individuals in it. Even if we don't always get along with them. Even if we have disagreements, we need to be thanking God for one another. Because everyone here is a gift from God to everybody else. Okay, we've talked about this before. If the church is a community, we don't have to live this life alone. We're a family that's been brought together 
by Jesus. I, I think back to my days when I worked at camp, and um, when, when I worked at camp, uh, the camp I worked at had, had two skate parks. So don't worry, we are, we're only going to have one. I don't have plans for a second one out front. Um, but I had some friends who looked really different from me. Um, sometimes we tried to, to tell the kids that I was a really awesome skateboarder, and uh, they never bought it. They never did. Um, just looking at me, they knew. But I had some friends, they had some pretty crazy piercings, some tattoos, but they loved Jesus. And one of the phrases that we had at camp was, if it weren't for Jesus, we wouldn't be friends. Because <laughs> we were so different from one another. And, and this church, we have some different people from each other here. None of us are the same. That'd be pretty boring. Okay? But that can cause conflict. So what we need to remember is that we are brought together by the blood of Christ into a family. And that we need to love one another and thank God for one another. Um, I think that, that Paul brings up that, that they have love towards all the saints, to the fellow believers, because I think it's harder to be nice to someone you really know. The closer you are, the easier I think it is sometimes to fight because you know all their faults and they know all yours. And, and so doesn't it, you know, the people that we know the best, we can really hurt them the most, can't we? Because we know what to really stick it to them. And so I think that's why Paul says your love towards all the saints because sometimes it's harder to love people that we're around the, more, the most. And because I think that is true, for, if, if you're thinking in your mind, well, Jim, well, what about loving unbelievers? What about loving people not in the community? I think that if we really believe in Jesus and we really love our fellow believers, we're going to love unbelievers. Because I think sometimes loving the people we're close to is harder. And so I think that, that that's wrapped up in there. So if you were thinking that, good job. But I think that that's the answer, is out of our faith in Christ and our love for our fellow believers, we will love those who do not yet know Jesus. And, and another point of application here is we need the priorities of Paul. I talked about this when we started. What are Paul's priorities here? Faith in Christ and love towards our fellow believers. We need that as our priorities. Our first priorities need to be that, that we love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that we love our church family. So now that we know sort of how Paul is thinking here, he's like, I care about you guys. I thank God for you guys. But this is what I want God to do for you here. Let's look at what Paul prayed. Let's look at the content of Paul's prayer in verses 17 to 23. I'm going to read through it and then we'll go back verse by verse. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the content of Paul's prayer here is that the Ephesians, the Ephesian Christians, the Ephesian church, would know God more. He's praying that God would reveal himself more to the church. And as we read it, the same applies to us. The, uh, the that there in verse 17 is a purpose word. It shows us that this is the purpose of his prayer, that this is what he wants accomplished uh, by his prayer. And he says it in two parallel ways. First, that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And then secondly, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Now, these two phrases are set up as, as parallel, similar phrases. And there's a couple reasons that that's really nice uh, for us today. Number one, we have repetition. And, and one of the major, most easy rules about reading your Bible is that repetition is important. So if God thought it was good enough to say again, it's important for us to hear. But also this idea of being parallel. And a lot of times in our Bible, when you have two phrases that are set up as parallels, um, they help us understand each other. Okay, so sometimes one will be uh, sort of a, an idiom or a phrase that, that might be hard to understand for, for people who aren't the original readers of the text. And so, for example, in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Well, what does that mean? Um, that might have been a phrase that was used back then. Um, that would have been clear to some people. But thankfully, God gave us that other phrase which said that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And so that's what the eyes of our heart being enlightened must mean, is it has to do with our growing in knowledge and wisdom in God. Okay, the heart, you got to remember, is not the way that we use it today. So like, I love you with all my heart. In our culture, the heart is an emotional, it's called the seat of emotion. Um, but in other uh, countries and cultures, they don't use the heart necessarily. You could say, you know, I love you with both my kidneys. Um, um, back in the New Testament, the seat of the emotion was your gut. And, um, and you see that sometimes in when Jesus talks, that, that his, if you were to literally translate it, that his his guts were warm for people. Okay, and that's how they, that's, I know it's weird. Okay, but that's the language that they use. Okay, because, you know, sometimes when you really care for something, you feel it, you feel it right there, and that's where they're getting it from. But the heart was more in the sense of the person. Okay, the center of the person was the heart back in this culture. And so what he's saying is that, that your inmost being would grow in the knowledge of God, that your eyes of faith would be open so you could see how great and awesome God is and that you would grow in your knowledge and therefore grow in your relationship and intimacy with the Savior of the universe. And then Paul goes on 
to give three ways to grow in our knowledge of God. First is going to be we're going to look at the hope. Second is going to be the riches of our inheritance. And the third is going to be his power. So let's look at those three ways. This is how Paul wants us to grow in our knowledge of God, by understanding hope, inheritance, and power. Look at verse 18a. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. As believers in Jesus, we have hope. And it's a certain hope. Not a, I hope this happens, or I wish this might happen. No, no. We have a certain hope as believers in Jesus. But why? Why is it certain? Why is it, why is it more than just a wish? Well, it's because it is a hope that God has called us to. Look at that again. What is the hope to which he has called you? So who's doing the action there? God is doing the action. And since God is doing the action of giving us hope by calling us to him, that hope is certain because it's not based on what I do or what you do. If it were, it wouldn't be certain because we all mess up. We're all fallen, finite people. But because God has called us to hope, it's certain. And we need to grow in our understanding that that is a real hope. This isn't some fairy tale. Okay, this is the truth. This will come about. And the great part of this hope is that we want hope. We want there to be a good ending to the story. Everybody wants to know how the story ends, and they want the story to end well. And we are the only ones, as having the gospel of Christ, we are the only ones that offer certain hope. If you look at every other religious system, it's all about following the right rules. It's all about doing the right things, and it's all on a reliance on me to do it. But we know ourselves better than anyone. And we know that any hope based on ourselves is doomed to fail. People want real hope. People want certain hope. And as we reflect on the certainty of our hope, we reflect on the greatest gift that we can offer someone, that there can be and is a good ending to the story. Now, people might not admit it, but people who don't know Jesus, they want a good ending to the story. We offer hope. We can give hope through the message of Jesus. Next, Paul prays that they would grow in a knowledge of what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? As believers in Jesus, we look forward to the greatest ending of the story. We look forward to being in paradise, seeing God 
face to face for all eternity. Where there is no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness. All the bad stuff is gone. And, and where it is so glorious that we don't even need a sun. Because God, I don't know exactly how this works, but he is so glorious that he provides the light for the entire area. And that this inheritance lasts forever. And one of the things that this helps, or this can help, is when we go through hard times now, we know that there will be a time when those hard times are done. And after when we've been in heaven for the first 10 billion years, it's eternity. There will be a first 10 billion years. I think it will help us look back and see, this is worth it. This is worth all the junk I went through in my life. Because that junk ended. And this doesn't end. Being in the glorious presence of Jesus forever does not end. And so as we grow in our knowledge of God, that we grow in our understanding of the richness that God has lavished upon us in our inheritance in him with heaven. Third thing that Paul wants the Ephesians and us to grow in our knowledge of God is the power, the power that God has. And, and when I first read this, I was a little surprised that this is the longest section of all three. And, and that made me pause to think a little bit because I think sometimes, sometimes in our Bible, just the sheer volume of words helps us to see the importance. And so I, I looked at this and I was like, wow, that is so much longer than the other ones. And I think part of the reason is because God's power is something we will never be able to fully grasp. And I think that thinking about God's power focuses, focuses us on how great and unlike us he is, that he's the transcendent God of the universe. And I think in our culture today, in the time in which we live, I think sometimes we forget the transcendent, all-powerful nature of God. Uh, I think sometimes... I think sometimes we want Jesus to be our buddy and we forget that he's still the king of the universe. You need both of those. And so don't hear me wrong on that, but I think sometimes we, we tend to be, well, Jesus is my friend, but I still want to do what I want. <laughs> and we forget that he's the all-powerful God of the universe. And so I think that's why this section talks about God's power so much. But let's read about this power, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the first thing I want us to see about this power is that this power is for us. It is for our good. Look at the beginning of verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? We have the all-powerful God of the universe on our side. He uses his power for our good. We are never alone in what we go through. Next, I want us to see that that God's power is shown best in Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the best example of God's power is the message of the gospel. That Jesus came, died, rose again, and ascended up into heaven. The greatest thing that has ever been done is the cross and grave and ascension of Christ. To understand God's power, we have to understand the gospel. Now, sometimes we think, well, that's just sort of the the entry route into the church. Okay, that's step one. Um, But it's more every step. Growing in our understanding of how great the gospel is, is every step of our lives. Every step of our walk with Christ needs to have at its center the cross. So the cross isn't the first step, it's, it's the hub of the wheel, where everything else comes off that hub. It's the center of everything. And this is a pattern in Scripture, that the cross is the best example of everything about who God is and what he does. It's the best example of his love because Christ died for sinners such as you and me. It's the best example of God's mercy where we did not deserve to be saved. We do not deserve the grace that comes through the cross. It's the best example of God's justice how sin was completely dealt with in a completely just way on the cross. Cross is the best example of God's self-revelation. We see who God is the best in the cross. And lastly, as we see here, the cross is the best example of God's power. And then we see from this power that God when he put uh, Jesus, when Jesus ascended, he put him at the right hand, at the Father's right hand. Now, why is that important? That's a place of power. Think of, think of in antiquity, you have a throne room, okay, and the person who was seated on the right side of the king was, was number two. Okay, this is, where, this is where we get the expression, you know, your right-hand man. Okay, what is that? That's the person who helps you the most. That's the most trusted person. And that's where Jesus is when he ascended. He's at the right hand of God himself. And think of the giant throne room in heaven when you picture this. And that Jesus now has greater power than any that exists 
in the physical and the spiritual realm. Look at verse 21 there. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That there is no power greater than the power that Christ has. That there is nothing in your life bigger than Jesus. Because everything is put under his feet. Look at verse 22. And God put all things under Jesus' feet. Okay, the idea there is he's sitting and he got a footstool. That everything is under the authority of Christ, just like Jesus' feet are on a footstool. Now, I don't know about your footstools or ottomans that you have at home, but I've never been afraid of one. I've never been afraid that an ottoman would attack me while I was sitting there. But that's the comparison. That every power, everything, compared to Jesus, is but a footstool. Is a place for his feet, the dirtiest part of his body. Think about that back then. Not really good shoes back then if you had sandals, maybe. But you're walking around in your bare feet on dusty roads. Feet, feet got filthy. And that's where every other power, every other force in the universe is put under the feet of Jesus. And so we do not need to be afraid of a footstool. We don't need to be afraid of an ottoman because our king is on the throne. And then Paul says that Jesus is control. He's head over all things. He has the power for the benefit of the church. Verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head, another sign of authority, Head over all things to the church for the benefit of the church. That this all happened to help the church, to protect the church, his people. Our king protects his people. And the church is his body. Okay? When it says put over thing gave him his head over all things to the church. We're not talking church buildings. And Paul makes sure we understand that because he says his body. Okay, we are Christ's representatives here on earth. We are the physical representation of Jesus right now. The best place to see who Jesus is is among the church because the church is his ambassadors. We go out into his world that he created and try to spread his kingdom through spreading the message, through creating new worshipers of God. And, and these three, understanding these three, help us understand who God is and what he has done. And when we understand who God is more, the better our relationship is with him, the more that we want to serve him in all that we do. So a couple thoughts as we conclude here. First one is, may, may sound over simple, but we all need to grow 
in our knowledge of God. We all need to be committed to knowing God more. I don't care how long you have been a Christian or how much schooling you have or how much study you've done. There is always more to be done. Next, do we forget the certain hope that we have? Do we become hopeless? Do we think that there's no way that this turns out okay in the end? Do we forget the riches of our inheritance? Do we think that this world is it? Are we tempted to pepper spray people for Xboxes because we think getting stuff here is the best thing? And do we lose hope when we forget that the troubles we go through now will end and there comes a time where we're in paradise forever and in comparison, there's no comparison. And do we forget about God's unsurpassed power? Do we forget that every power, every circumstance, every government on earth is nothing but Jesus' footstool? When we grow in our knowledge of God, our service to God will grow. Like I will make you this promise. If you desire to grow in your knowledge of God, to dig into God's word, to know God more, to meditate on it day and night, I promise that you will want to serve God more. There is always a connection between what we believe and what we do. I know that there's not a lot of, well, go and do this now, applications with this text, but because it is more about God's knowledge and knowing God, I want to I show you what I just said of that there is always a connection. There's always a correlation between our knowledge of God and our actions. For, for those of you who want to do something. <laughs> um, one of the areas of history, I, I have a history major, that's my, my undergrad. And one of my favorite areas of history where I really let my nerd flag fly at full mast, um, even Joe makes fun of me for this, um, but are, are called the consistory minutes. Okay, if you come from a Presbyterian or Dutch Reformed background, you'll know what a consistory is. But pretty much what it is, um, during the time of the Reformation, the church in Europe had a little bit more power than what it does today. Now, there were some problems with that, but one of the good things was is that your congregation, if you were a pastor back then, consisted of the whole city. Okay, so you were able to speak truth into everybody in the city's life. Okay, so this consistory was a group of pastors and elders. And what they did was, is they'd call people in who were causing trouble or not acting in a Christ-like way. So if you, were, um, if you got caught with a drunken disorderly, you didn't go to the cops, you came to the consistory. Um, if you were fighting so much with your spouse that your neighbors heard you, you got brought to the consistory. If you were skipping church, you got brought to the consistory. And so it was, it was a board of discipline uh, to help spread right behavior uh, among Christians. And I actually have this, is I have a book of 
the minutes of those meetings from 1542 to 1544. Um, it's a pretty thick novel. And it's pretty much elder meeting minutes, if you want to think about it that way, from, from more than 500 years ago. So like I said, not many people are involved in this. But, but what's interesting is that when they have repeat offenders, people who are in no way living in a Christ-like way, Okay, because they even deal with more seri serious cases like spouse abuse and, and runaways and marriage things. And they deal with some serious issues too. Um, but the people, the repeat offenders, they ask them to do two things. They ask them to recite the Apostles' Creed, which is a, a summary of what Christians believe. It's a good, a good summary. Um, and to say the Lord's Prayer in the vernacular. Okay, because before under Catholicism, you'd say it in Latin. Um, and so you had to do those two things. That's it. And the repeat offenders usually could not do it at all. Okay, now I've, I grew up in, in a Lutheran tradition, and so we said the apostles, uh, apostles' Creed every week, so I have it memorized. It's not that hard, okay? Everybody here could do it. But what is amazing was how the repeat offenders could not articulate a basic summary of their faith. And what that says to me is if you can't articulate something, I don't know how well you believe it. And if you don't really believe it, it's not going to change how you live. So if you don't really believe that Jesus died for your sins, rose again, and in thanks to that, you worship him through serving him in a way that he would be pleased, if you don't really believe that, you're not going to act like it. And so there is this connection between what we do and what we know. And some of you here today need to hear, you need to learn more about God. You need to grow in your knowledge of God. Because if you do want to serve God in a better way, you need the knowledge to do that. Because again, if you really believe something, it'll change how you live. And to do that, we need the posture and humility of a student. No matter how long we've been studying God's word, no matter how old we are, we always need to be learners. We always need to come to the text and say, this knows more than me. I'm the student of this text. And along with that, are you taking advantage of the stuff we have at church where you can grow in your knowledge of God? Um, do you take advantage of our Sunday school classes? Do you take advantage of small groups? Do you take advantage of the men's and women's Bible studies that we have? We have opportunities, and God, I promise you, if you invest in those opportunities, God will use them to help you grow in a knowledge of him. But some of you may need to hear today that you aren't taking advantage of those opportunities. We need to be committed to growing our knowledge of God. This is why Joe and I preach as long as we do. Because as a church, we want to be committed to growing our knowledge of God. There are some places they will only preach for 20 minutes. I'm not going to tell you where they are because I don't want you to go there. You might be able to make one of the later services. But, um, but there's a reason we don't just preach for 20 minutes up here. And it's not just because me and Joe really like the sound of our voices. I don't like the sound of my voice, but another issue at another time. But it's because we are committed to growing in our knowledge of God. 
That's why as a part of every children and youth ministry that we do, we have teaching times for the kids and the youth. Because it's important. The knowledge of God is important. And if you don't have a knowledge of God, you can't think that you'll have the actions that God wants. All my hunters out there, do you take God's word out with you in the tree stand? What a great way to grow in our knowledge of God. I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do it. Maybe a note card that you nail to the tree where you're sitting, and you think about that section of text. That's a great way. Some of the best times where I've grown in my knowledge of God is when I've been reading my Bible outdoors. Wonderful. Are you taking advantage of that time in silence to know the God who saved you even more? I lived with a, with a couple when I was in seminary. I lived in their basement. And one of the things that she would do is in their bathroom, their bathroom mirror was covered with note cards of Bible verses, of quotes from sermons. Why? Because she was in there every morning for a really long time. (laughs) But it was a place that she saw often. Think about your desks at work or a desk at home if you work from home. Uh, One of the things I do is is I have these, uh, they're like digital sticky notes on my desktop on my computer. I don't actually put sticky notes on my computer, but they stick up there and they look like sticky notes. And I put quotes and phrases and verses on there because I look at that computer every day, way too long some days. But are, are you taking advantage of the opportunities you have to grow in your knowledge of God, to grow in your knowledge of God's word? Another way to grow in your knowledge, to understand more the hope, the riches, and the power is to teach it. Maybe some of you need to hear that you need to, uh, you need to sign up to teach kids Sunday school. Or, or maybe you need to hear that you should volunteer to do council time at Awana. I know Rick would appreciate that. Because when you teach something, you really have to know it. Because one, you're in front of people, and if you mess up, you look stupid. <laughs> but to actually get something that you present to people, you have to know what you're talking about. And that's a great way to grow in your knowledge. And lastly, that you would be praying for yourself and for others to grow in their knowledge of God. That that as you encourage one another to love and good works, as you stir one another up, that you would be praying that, that your friends and family would take up advantage of, of opportunities to learn about Jesus and that God would put in their hearts a desire to know him more. Because when we know God more, we'll have a better relationship with him and we will grow in our service to him, which is our act of worship. And we, ful- we will fulfill what we've been called to. And it's a lifelong journey. It is a lifelong journey. And, and if you are to the point where you're like, I don't know how to grow more, well, then maybe it should be in teaching 
or finding somebody younger than you who does need to grow more and going to Sunday school with them or going to men's and women's Bible study with them. You know what? You come with me. We'll go together so we don't go alone. All these opportunities because that will cause you serving someone else and helping them grow will help you grow too. So double benefits. How about that? Two for the price of one. But I hope you're seeing today that in this prayer, that Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is the same as my prayer for you, that you would grow in the knowledge and the wisdom of Christ, that you would know him more, that you would know him more closely, and that you would serve him with all that you are. Let's pray.